Jesus said, do not judge by appearances. Instead, judge with right judgment. That's that point when Jesus was speaking to some of his opponents, some of the crowd that was standing around, and, and they looked at him, and they saw uh, somebody who was from Nazareth, somebody who was not uh, from the religious elite, somebody who was not uh, from the right place that they thought of, or, or somebody who appeared to have the right kind of power or, or energy or ability. And they looked at who he was, and they did not see the signs. They did not understand what was happening in front of them, that he was demonstrating himself to be the Messiah. They judged by appearances rather than with true judgment. That is, with God's kind of judgment. You know, the, the opposite is also true. Sometimes you, you look at things and you see and you see how it looks on the outside and you see that it looks good and it seems that, that on the outside it appears to be prospering and succeeding and doing well. But then you, you miss the fact that there's something off, that there is something wrong. The reality is, is that, that we need to judge with right judgment. What I hope you will be able to do today is to be able to judge with right judgment. To be able not to only to judge by appearances, but instead to know the true reality of a thing. And especially to know that what God judges to be true and right is true and right. No matter what it looks like to the world. Today we're going to be in uh, 1 Samuel 10. 1 Samuel 10. We're going to start in verse 17, 1 Samuel 10, starting in verse 17. What I want you to see first is confirmation before the people. So we're kind of picking up in the middle of the story, middle of a, a section. Uh, and let me read uh, chapter, uh, verse 17 through the end of the chapter, and then I'll kind of catch everybody up so we're all on the same page. We can kind of make sense of what's happening here. So I read verse 17, confirmation before the people. It says, now Samuel called the people together. To the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saved you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourself before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by his clan. The clan of the Mitrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hid himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless men fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents. But he held his peace. In 1 Samuel 8, that's where we're going to start. 1 Samuel 8 is where the people ask for a king. Uh, they, they see that, that, that things are not working out with, with Samuel's sons, that things are not working out with just leadership by judges. They see problems with things, and they say, we want a king. And they especially say two things. 
that are problematic. We want a king like all the other nations, which means that they really wanted a king that they relied on and that they trusted in to win all of their battles for them. The problem is, is that they were not looking for the kind of righteous king that God had described in Deuteronomy. In fact, they God says his judgment about them is that they are rejecting him as their king. God was the one who had always gone and fought Israel's battles for them. It was God who went into Egypt and through the ten plagues and through the mighty signs and wonders that he did there. It was God who delivered and redeemed Israel out of Egypt without them having to lift a sword blade or do anything. But Samuel tells them, y'all go home and uh, I'll call you when it's time to select the king. Well, in the meantime, chapters 9 and 10 up to this point, uh, God, through some uh, extraordinary circumstances, brings a man named Saul. Saul is taller than everybody else. Saul is from a, Saul is from a, a wealthy family. He's very tall. Uh, he's very handsome. And God chooses him to be a king like the other nations because he is to all appearances, a king like the other nations. He's the, he's the kind of guy that you would want to be your champion, the kind of guy that you would want to go out and fight your battles for you. And so the last thing that you see in chapter 10 in verses 1 through 16 is that Samuel, who is the prophet in Israel, a prophet who is recognized all throughout Israel, God uses Samuel to anoint Saul as king. But this is done in private. This is done without anybody else knowing about it. There are signs that confirm it to Saul and to the people who are around him, but nobody else knows about it. So here is, we are picking up from something like the point, as far as the people are concerned, from where Samuel said, y'all go home, I'll call y'all together when I'm ready to, when God's ready to let y'all know who the king is. Uh, but here they are actually being brought back together. And this is where, where Saul is public, publicly confirmed as the king of Israel before the people. So that, that's what's happening here. So, so uh, Samuel calls everybody together, but this is not this is not a really positive uh, moment here. This is not this is not oh happy day we're going to get a king. Samuel, as the prophet of God, reminds them of what they've done. Okay, God's about to give you a king. God's about to give you what you asked for, but don't forget what you're doing. I want you to realize what you're doing. You really need to repent right now what you're doing. This is who God is. God, God is the one who delivered Israel out of, out of Egypt from the Egyptians. God is the one who delivered, delivered Israel from all of their enemies. God is the one who has delivered you from every enemy since you've been in the land. God is the one who delivers you. God is the one who helps you. God is the one who saves you. He even says there, who is, who is uh, today, verse 19, today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your enemies and your stresses. All your calamities. And you said, set a king over us. They're rejecting God. They are rejecting God as a Savior. And, and I think, I think if, uh, we didn't have time to go from chapter, all the way from chapter 8, all the way to chapter 12. But, but if you just go back and read it in your own private, private Bible reading time, how often does Samuel give the people a chance to repent? How often are his words to the effect of, you shouldn't be doing this. In fact, that's probably not the way Samuel says it. Samuel says, you shouldn't be doing this, okay? Stop it. You're rejecting God. Don't you understand what you're doing? You're rejecting God. Stop it. Stop now while you can. But they keep 
they keep going. They keep saying, give us the king. And so there's a selection process. Now this is this selection process is not does not have a good background. There's only one other time that a person is selected in this way, and that is Achan. Again, we've got to be very we've got to, got to keep be careful not to go too far afield for time's sake. But you go back and you read Joshua six and seven and see what happens to Achan. The short version is, is that Achan gets stoned to death. You go back and, and read it's selected in the same way, but that's how they select Saul. When they select Saul, Saul comes all you know, kind of, kind of selects the the the, uh, the tribe of Benjamin and then his plan, and then it comes down to Kish's house and to Saul. Saul is the one, but they can't find Saul. The same way that Saul could not find the donkeys in chapters nine and ten without God's help, the people of God cannot even find their king without God's help. Look at what it says. So, so they 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 made the selection process by lot. Uh, this is this is uh, this is they, they would cast these stones that were held by the priests. They were called the Urim and the Thummim. I remember the first time I, I read that, I was reading with my, like my like one of my pastors when I was a when I was a teenager, and, and we we're like, "What's the Urim and the Thummim?" So we found out what the Urim and the Thummim was. It was a way that when you needed a simple yes or no answer, the priest had the authority to use the Urim and the Thummim to say yes or no. So God kept saying yes. To this plan, and yes to this plan, and yes to this plan, until you get down to Saul. But then they still can't find Saul, so they still have to inquire of God again. Where's Saul? We can't find the people of Israel have their king. They can't even find him without God's help. That God, God's trying to say, you can't do this without my help. How, how good it would be if we understood simply by the instruction of God by the careful, patient, hinting, stopping, halting ways that God says, no, 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 don't do this. You need my help. I wonder if it would be if we understood that. We understood it by God telling us instead of God disciplining us. It is, it is wisdom to hear what God says and to go from there. Listen, when God says, you need God's help, just listen. Just listen and say, yes, we do need God's help. We'll have a king, but we will ultimately rely upon the Lord. That's not what they do. What they do, they, they bring they bring Saul out, and Samuel says, look here, Saul. And what the, the people are like, look at how tall that guy is. What, what, what man is there like anybody else in all the nation of Israel like this guy? He's head and shoulders above everybody else. Yes. Yes, we've got ourselves a king today. Woo! You know, this is a big guy. This is a, this is a guy that we can get behind. I remind you sometimes, remind you of when we looked at, looked at chapter 8. Who's the other big tall guy I talked about in the book of Sam? Goliath. Don't judge by appearances. What they're doing, though, they're, they're saying, we want a king like the other nations. We want a king who's going to go out there, he's going to carry the big spear, he's going to carry the big shield, he's going to wear the big thing of armor, and uh, and he's going to go out, out there, and he will fight our battles for us. We won't rely upon God to fight our battles anymore. We want this king to fight our battles. Well, things are not all negative. Okay, There are a lot of there are a lot of things that are they're going on. It seems like you're getting off to a good start in some ways. Uh, some people are excited about Saul. There are others who are not, not impressed by him. Uh, this guy's 
This guy is Saul from Gibeah uh, in the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin's not a great tribe. Uh, Saul, uh, the, the tribe, the town of Gibeah is not a great town. This guy can't. This guy can't possibly. But look, look, look what happens. God touches some men's hearts. Saul, Saul doesn't even gather his own army and his own ability. God, God causes some some men of valor to go off and, and to become a part of Saul's army. And Saul, Saul, he's he's not pictured in a negative light here. Not in every way. Keeps his peace. Not, not retaliating against against these guys who are against him. Then he holds his peace. And uh, just kind of like, let's, just, let's see what happens. thing is, I, I hope you'll I'll go see what's happening here. It is not right for us to ever rely on anyone or anything else except for God. God is our Savior. When they are rejecting when they are choosing this king, like the other nations, to fight their battles for them, they are choosing a new savior. A savior that's not God. Well, next we see in chapter 11, confirmation through victory. Confirmation through victory. Three, chapter 11. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead tomorrow, By the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who, who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Well, here, here's, the, here's the big test. There's this guy named Nahash. Uh, Nahash means snake. So this man, Nahash, he's coming from the region of Ammon. That's, uh, that's to the east of the, I'm sorry, yeah, to the east of the, of the Jordan River. 
comes over to this place that's a part of Israel, that's also to the east of the Jordan River, named Jabesh Gilead. Uh, you'll kind of want to go back and, and maybe again in your in your private uh, reading time, study time, go back and look at Judges uh, 19 through 21 and look at the connections between Jabesh Gilead and Saul uh, of Gibeah in the tribe of Benjamin. Some interesting things there. Some interesting kind of kind of things where where there are dark notes. Uh, that are struck here that maybe you don't recognize on your on your first pass. Anyway, Nahash comes against Jabesh Gilead and says uh, that the people of Jabesh Gilead they do something that they're not supposed to do. Uh, they try to make a treaty with Nahash. Uh, Nahash says, "Yeah, I'll make a treaty with you, uh, but here's the, here are the terms: I'll gouge out uh, every right eye of every man. This means that they can work their fields." Uh, and, and be productive and make money and make produce and, and give their tribute to Nahash. Uh, but you can't, you can't fight back with only one eye. You've got to have one eye. Uh, usually one eye will be uh, guarded by a shield so that you can see with the other. Plus you mess up your depth perception. All kinds of things. So they, can't, they can work their fields. They can give the money to Nahash. But they can't fight back. Well, Jabesh, the, the people in Jabesh, the men of Jabesh say... Well, let us send some messengers out, and if no one, did you catch this? If no one comes to save us, and cry out to the Lord, they cry out to the Lord the way the people had all, all these times in Judges. They cried out to the Lord. No, they, let's, let's send some messengers out, see if we can figure something out. And, uh, and they send their connections between Saul's family and the people in Jabesh, and so it's natural that a messenger comes to, uh, to Gibeah. Uh, to where Saul is. And everybody hears the news. Everybody starts crying. Everybody starts weeping. Uh, Saul comes in, still working the fields. He's just going about his business like nothing happened, like he wasn't anointed, like he wasn't confirmed. But here, when he hears the news, he is greatly angered. He has zeal for the people of God, and the Spirit of God rushes upon him. Where does Saul get his strength? He gets it from the Spirit of God. How is Saul able to win the battle? He wins it by the, by the Spirit of God. And when it says that the Spirit of God rushed upon him, this is the same kind of language that was, that was used in the book of Judges when uh, somebody named Samson, the strongest man, the strong man in Israel, was raised up to deliver the people from the Philistines. The Spirit of God, though, does not necessarily mean that, that uh, it, it gives strength. The Spirit of God coming upon a man here gives him strength doesn't necessarily make him, give him a new heart or make him more. Uh, say, for instance, in Samson's case, Samson was uh, one who uh, broke his sacred vow that he had made to God, the vow of the Nazarite, that he would be somebody who was holy and set apart for God. He was somebody who uh, committed sexual immorality, not only committed sexual immorality, but committed sexual immorality with, with foreign women. Uh, he was somebody who was very proud. And so it's not necessarily, doesn't necessarily mean that Saul is someone who is honorable uh, in a moral sense. It just means that he is somebody who is empowered by God. God used, God sent his spirit upon people like Samson or here like Saul to strengthen them, to lead the people. And that's when uh, Saul said, grabs these, this team of oxen, cuts it in 12 pieces, sends it out to all the people and says, let this be done to your oxen if you don't come and gather around me. And let's go to battle. And what comes upon the people? The dread of the Lord. How did Saul become king? By God's power, God's selection. 
How does Saul have the power to lead the people in battle? It comes from the Lord. Where does Saul get these men of valor who follow him? Where does Saul get this, this great army, one of the largest armies recorded in Israel up to this point? 330,000 men. Where does Saul get this army? It comes from the Lord. Yeah, when you, when you, when you see Saul winning the battle, you really need to know it's God winning the battle. Despite the fact that the people are demanding the king. Who is it that delivers God's people? It is only God himself. Well, Saul goes to battle. Saul uh, does, does something uh, smart, uh, tactic, kind of guerrilla tactics. Uh, he, he divides his army up into three groups. Strikes between sometime between two o'clock and six o'clock in the morning. That's the that's the early morning watch. This final watch before the break of day catches Nahash and the Ammonites off guard and routes them so badly that that two men can't even stand together and, and fight back to back. I mean they are they are running in every direction possible. And even there at the end, Saul has this this positive light. Again, Saul does something that's right. There, there, there are negative things about Saul, and we're going to see, see those things as we progress. But Saul's doing some things right. We're off to a good start. These men that, that had, had not honored Saul as king, uh, a lot of the hotheads in, in Israel, they're like, hey, let's, 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 let's keep find those guys who are saying bad things about Saul, who just won the battle for us, and let's, let's kill them. Let's stone them to death. And that's when Saul says, no, no today is a day of victory. Uh, Saul even has a good word. Today, the Lord has brought salvation for Israel, for the people. So, today, no one's going to die today in Israel. After that, Samuel calls everybody. Let's go, let's go to this place called Gilgal. Gilgal is an important place. This is the, the launching off point for, for Joshua when he leads the people in the battle, into the, the, the campaigns to take the promised land. And so, let's go back to, let's go back to Gilgal. Let's renew the kingdom. Let's renew the covenant. Very similar to the way that Joshua had renewed the covenant in places like Joshua 23 and 24. Uh, that's the place where uh, Joshua famously says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They go back and they're going to renew the covenant. Same way that uh, when the covenant was first struck, the covenant uh, made at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, there were peace offerings. This is where there was an offering and the people would, would have a feast in God's honor with God, sort of like they were having a fellowship meal with God. They're going to renew all those things. Praise God. What a great day in Israel. So what do you think about all this? What are you supposed to think about all this? I think, on the one hand, we need to recognize that God saved his people that day. Same way that God saved the people from the Egyptians, same way that God saved his people from all the peoples, that, that well, while they were headed to the promised land, same way that God had delivered Israel from all the people who had always harassed them while they lived in the promised land, God is the one who saves. The other thing is, is that let's be careful about judging by appearances. Seeing things that look good in the short term, we have to be careful to judge with right judgment. And if you're, if you, you read through the book of 1 Samuel, you read through the book of 1 Samuel, and you, you read through it the first time, and you read over these things, you, you think of, say, uh, chapter 12 and chapter 10 and chapter 9 and these, these different pictures of Saul and they doesn't seem so bad. When you read all the way through 
to the end of 1 Samuel, the second time, you go, wow, this guy's really a pagan king, like all the other nations have. That's how he turned out. And so we have to keep those things in mind. Now then, this is really just the, the prelude to the big, uh, the big heavy lifting in chapter 12. So let's read chapter 12, and there we see confirmation of God's judgment. Because it's God's judgment that matters. Let's read chapter 12 together. It says, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. Now, behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whom, whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against us, against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor. And into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the, Baal, served the Baals and the Asheroths. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and, and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the Lord, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, ask for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord 
and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great, great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Samuel's kind of a downer. Samuel's not excited about the victory. Samuel, Samuel says, I, I, I want you to testify against me. He basically puts himself on trial and says, you testify against me. Have I oppressed anybody? Have I taken anything from anybody? Have I taken any bribes? Have I used anybody? Have I milked anybody? Have I worked anybody? Have I, have I stolen from anybody? I'm, I'm old, okay? I'm old. My sons are before you. I know that my sons are not good judges. But you look at my life. Nevertheless, look at my life. And have I judged you rightly? Can you find any fault in me? And people all say, no. It's not because of Samuel. It's not, it's not Samuel's fault that they rejected judge the judges. It's not, because, it's not Samuel's fault that they rejected God as their king. Kind of think about that. And just, just as a side, I think this is the idea of what it looks like for a church leader to be above reproach. Doesn't mean that everybody, uh, everybody is is uh, likes uh, a church leader necessarily, but it does mean that they cannot have any moral uh, problems found against them, not by insiders or outsiders. So, just when you're thinking about those descriptions of church leaders and places like First Timothy three, this is what it looks like to be above reproach. Samuel is above reproach. Nobody can look at him and find anything immoral about. He's not taking from people. He's not hurting people. He's not living wrongly before them. They say, we don't find anything wrong. And, and Samuel says, well, God, God is witness. And not only God, but the Lord's anointed is witness. Now, one of the things that I think is interesting here, you don't see the name of Saul mentioned one time in chapter 12. Saul's been the main guy who's being chosen in chapters 9, 10, 11. Now Saul's off the picture. It's not, it's not between, uh, it's not between, it's not about Saul in particular. It's about the, the people's evil desire for a pagan king, for a king like the other nations. Then Samuel says, now God stand witness against you. Now I'm, now, now Samuel is going to speak on the, on the, on behalf of God. Now think about what's happening here. This is, this is the, uh, this is the height of inappropriate behavior for Samuel, when they just won a battle, they just renewed the covenant, uh, they had said all the things that were there for the king to do, uh, when they when they confirmed Saul, Saul's been confirmed, that, you know, they, they, they've heard everything that he's supposed to do, but Samuel, here's the thing that's still lacking in the people of Israel, you know what they haven't done? They have not repented. They have not repented. They didn't, they didn't repent when Samuel warned them. They didn't repent when Samuel warned them again. They didn't repent when Nahash came against them. They didn't repent now that the, the covenant is being renewed. They, they have not yet repented. And God's prophet has to keep on speaking about repentance until they repent. I heard a story one time about uh, this new new pastor came into the church and, and uh, and uh, one, of the, one of the ladies said, now, all you ever talk about is how sinful I am and how much I, we need to repent. When are we going to hear about some, something good? When you repent. 
My ask the famous famous evangelist, a famous preacher back in the 18th century. Why, why do you keep preaching? You must be born again. Because you must be born again. You must repent. Samuel's message. Repent. God, look, look at all the things that God has done for you. I'm going to plead with you. This is this is kind of Samuel's farewell address. He's going to he's going to he's not going to be completely on the scene, but he's going to he's not going to be front and center anymore. I'm going to plead with you one last time. I want you to remember what God has done for you. It was God. It was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. When Jacob, when the people of Jacob, when the people of Israel cried out in their suffering and their oppression, it was God who delivered them. But then, then they forgot God. They forgot the Lord their God. And so God sent in these other nations to, to oppress them, to discipline them. Sent in people like Sisera, people like, people like the, the king of Moab. These are people who are recorded in the book of Judges. He sent them, he sent them to you to discipline you. And then the, the people cried out to the Lord and God raised up. He raised up judges. He raised up saviors. God, God had often worked through people. He, he was, it was God who appointed Moses and Aaron. It was God who appointed people like Barak and people like Jephthah and people like, people like Ehud and people like Samuel. He raised them up. God had always used people, but it was God who saved you. The people, the people cried out in their suffering and they, they said, we have forsaken you. What does Israel need to say? They need to confess their sins to God and say, God, we have forsaken you. We have rejected you as God. God, please forgive us for our sins. They need to be. They need to be like the, the tax collector in Luke 18. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That man went home justified. That man went home right with the Lord. Well, what happens when Nahash the Ammonite? There's some indication that maybe this, you know, Nahash was coming on. Like Jabesh wasn't the first city that, that Nahash had come to and gouged out some people's eyes. Nahash was coming. When they saw Nahash coming, what did they want? Did they, did they cry out? Did they say, Lord, we have forsaken you? God, please forgive us for our sins. God, we repent. Please, please grant that we would serve you. And they said, we want a king. We want a king to go out and fight our battle for us. And, and Samuel says, here's the covenant. Here's the covenant that is, that is called in the New Testament the Old Covenant. Uh, the covenant made with, at Sinai. It goes like this. If you, and now, not only if you, but if you and your king obey the Lord's commands, it will be well with you. But if you don't, you and your king will be wiped away. What's the history of Israel but a history of primarily wicked kings leading people into wickedness and ultimately being wiped away in the exile, being wiped away, taken out of the promised land, having, having the temple torn down so that one stone is not on top of another. You know what? Israel, the, the covenant made with Israel is very much like the covenant made with Adam. If, they, if you obey... You have life. You disobey. And the day that you disobey, you, you'll know death. In Israel, for Israel, it was if, if you obey, you stay in the land. You know God's blessing. It will go well with you. If you disobey, you'll be brought out of the land. For Israel's kings, 
You lead the people well. You obey the Lord's commands. You, you, you think about the Lord's commands and you fear the Lord. You serve the Lord. Things go well, but if you don't, they'll, they'll go bad. You know, Adam disobeyed. Israel disobeyed. Israel's kings all disobeyed. You know what the great, the great message of the new covenant is? A new covenant that's not like the old covenant is that we have one who obeyed in our place. We have a king. Not a king who led people in disobedience, but a king who leads the people who completely fulfilled the law, who died in our place to take the penalty of the law, and who makes us righteous before God by his obedience. We have Jesus Christ. He says, keep saying to him, obey the voice of the Lord. Keep the covenant. And then he says, I want to show you that's why I say that the, this last section, the confirmation of God's judgment. I want you to see what God really thinks about what you've done. I don't want you to get the wrong idea because you want a battle that God approves of what you've done. Sometimes, what, what is difficult? What is, the, what is one of the, the, the worst things that God can allow to happen to a person is for them to go on in their sin, believing that because things are going okay, God approves of me. Don't judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. And Samuel says, hey, I want you to know what God really thinks. And so, look, look out. I, you guys, you guys, you're living, you're, you're, at, you're agrarians. You, you, you people of Israel, it's the wheat harvest. The wheat harvest happens during the dry season. That's, uh, that's when the harvest happens. In fact, uh, it needs to be pretty dry for the harvest to be big. And, and Samuel says, Y'all watch. Y'all watch. The same way that God even used the, the elements, he used hail and, and storms to destroy the crops of the Egyptians. Well, he's going to send thunder and he's going to send, send rain right now. And this is going to hurt the crops, it's going to hurt them, this is going to, it's going to take away, it's going to, and it's going to be, it's going to be like it, it snowing in Miami in July. It, this is what's happening here. And so it thunders and it rains. It says that the people feared God. Now, now, my whole life, I've heard people say, you know, fear is not a good motivator for repentance for, for people fearing God. And I think what they mean is, is that we should not be use fear to manipulate people's emotions. But that sentiment is is contradicted in all kinds of places in the Bible. Listen, if it if fear leads you to repent, to genuinely, truly repent. Praise God. Praise God that the dread of the Lord, that the fear of the Lord, that that the great, majestic, awesome majesty gets through to you. Because, Because what God says in the thunder and in the rain and the lightning and the storm, he says, you think that a king delivers you. You think that your gods, the Baals and the Asterisks, you think that they, you think that they provide for you. I hold your life in my hand. God is the one who rules over all things. It is God who judges the the living and the dead, the righteous and the wicked. God holds all things. The people fear. They say say to Samuel, look at verses 15 through 19. Samuel, pray for us. Pray for us. You'll remember Samuel is very much a a figure who's like uh, 
who's like Moses, somebody who's a mediator, that is, somebody who goes in between us and God. Samuel was like that. You know, we have a mediator who is greater than Moses. A mediator who prays for us. The assurance of Jesus Christ is that, that he stands all the time representing us before God, interceding for us. How great it is to have somebody better than Moses and Samuel praying for us. And, and Samuel says to him, he says, don't be afraid. If you'll repent, don't be afraid. God, God, think, think of it this way. Think of the fear of the Lord this way. God does something to cause them to fear, to bring them to their repentance. And then he says to those who are ready to confess their sins, don't be afraid. Because I want you to know, if you come into the Lord Jesus Christ, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of God's judgment. There's no condemnation for those who are repenting of their sins and coming to Jesus Christ. There is great reason to fear if you remain obstinate and reject the Lord. He says, don't be afraid. The Lord will not forsake his people. He will not forsake his people for his own great name's sake. You know, God made a promise. And God, God swore by the name that is above every name, his very own name. He could not, he could not swear by any other name higher than himself. So when God made a promise to Abraham that through his offspring, he would bless all nations, that his offspring will become a great nation, that his offspring would, would, would fill the earth. He swore by his very own name. And God must be true to himself. God cannot lie. God cannot lie. And so for his own great name's sake, he has chosen a people for himself and he will be true to those people. But uh, here's, here's one point I want you to focus on. Look at verse 21. I want to read that again. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. They wanted a king who would go out and fight their battles. They worshiped these false gods because they believed that these false gods would fill their bellies. It was between their, their, between their prosperity and their desire for security. They, they turned away from the one true God who could save them. You cannot serve two men. You cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God's. Right. You cannot love God and love the world. You can't. You cannot hope and hope to be profited by or delivered by the things of this world and turn away from God. Those things are empty. Empty. What more can you say about the gods of this world about the things that, the promises that this world makes to us. Empty. Empty. You look at verse 21. How many, he, he's, don't, don't turn to these empty things that are empty. They're the empty empties. They're the, they're the emptiest of the empties. These things that you put all of your hope in and put all of your trust in, you're hoping that they'll deliver you. You hope they'll, they'll give you security and comfort. They're empty. Empty. Why? Why do you worship them? 
Why do you bow down to them? Why do you put your hope in them? Why do you put your hope and your confidence and your faith in them? Put your faith in God. Trust Him. You know that the message for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ is still the message that Jesus gave to us. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Last thing, last thing he says there, only fear the Lord, serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great, great things he has done for you. Think about what God has done for us. Paul says, he who did not spare his only son, how will he much more give you all these things? How about Jesus? God sent Jesus for us. What Jesus says in, in Matthew 6, that very same place where he says you cannot serve God and money. He says, your father knows you need these things. Your father knows. God gave us his son. What, what more could God do to establish, to affirm, to solidify in your sight that he loves you, his people, that he loves all of you who are turning from your sins and trusting Christ? What more can he do to assure you that he loves you than give his son? This is the way God showed his love for us. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his only son to be the propitiation for our sins. That he would die to take the penalty for our sins. God has already told you. God has already shown you. What do you need to see? What do you need to know more than that God gave his only son? Don't turn to the empty things of the world. Trust in Christ. Serve Him only. I just want to end with these, with the same challenge. The challenge, the, the very same thing Samuel says there at the end. If you if you refuse to serve the Lord, you'll be swept away. It's very much like the the final words of Jesus' sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five through seven. He says, "Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock." And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall. Samuel says, I'm going to keep praying for you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to keep teaching you what is good and right and true, how much better is it to have the words of Jesus Christ? And if you build your life on the words of Jesus Christ, you will not be swept away, but you will stand on the last day. But if you build on the empty things, if you build on the sand, if you build on the empty gods of this world, on the empty promises of this world, you will fall. And it will be a very great disaster. Certainly you will fear. Let's hope in Jesus Christ. Build our lives on his words. How gracious he is to give us his words and give us his promises. To even give his life for us. Trust in him. Uh, Father, um, Please take away the, the blindness of our eyes so that we would see things the way they really are. 
Please grant that we would see that the empty promises of this world are that, that they are empty promises. Help us to judge with right judgment. Keep us from looking at those things that, that sparkle and shine and appear to prosper for a time. But moth will eat it up. Rust will destroy. The thief will come in and steal. Help us to store our treasure in heaven. Help us to build our hopes on you. Help us to keep our sights on you. Grant that we would put our hope in Jesus Christ. The one true righteous king. Not a king like the other nations have. Not a king like like those who are out for themselves, but the king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for me. Help us to build our lives on his word. To be found in him on the last day, so that we might stand. To the name of our mediator, the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. One of the words that Jesus gave to us was the word that is preached in the Lord's Supper. This is what God says to us. This is what Jesus says to us when we take the bread, when we take the cup. Through these symbols, he says, my body is broken for you. My blood is poured out for you. And so when we take it, let us remember God's word to us. Let us remember Jesus' word to us. He's made a new covenant with us. A covenant where our sins are forgiven and we have a new heart. We have the Spirit of God even living within us because of Jesus' did. So everybody who's trusted in the Lord, who's walking with the Lord in the fellowship of the local church, who's identified, who's been named with Jesus Christ by being baptized in his name, come and take the Lord's Supper. Come and take bread. Come and take cup. And let's hear the word that Jesus speaks to us.